0: It is a privilege to be with you this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come and deliver God's word to you. Uh, Before I read the sermon text this morning, I wanted to give uh, an intro to provide uh, some context. And this intro is a little different. I'm going to do it in a story form. So, there once was an old man, an old but powerful man. He had left his father's house, his kinsmen, he left his land. He didn't know where he was going, but he was on the move. Despite this, he had a beautiful wife, great riches, and he was feared by many. Kings fled before him. The land bowed down to him. He had victory wherever he went. And throughout all his wandering, he only added to his wealth and power. He had everything a man could want, well, almost everything. All he had actually ever wanted, all he and his wife had ever wanted, was a child. He wanted a child to hold, to love. As he and his wife grew older and older, the possibility of a child dwindled, and eventually despair came over them. But this despair turned into confusion. For the unknown God, Yahweh, had revealed himself to this man. Yahweh God promised this man offspring, a great many offspring, that his name would be great and that he would be a blessing to the nations. But years had now passed, and Yahweh's promise seemed like only a dream to the old man. He and his wife were old, and they still were without a child the promise from Yahweh became confusing, silent, dark. So this man and his wife carried sorrow with them. Their emptiness surrounded them. Their laughter ceased. Though they had much, they had so little. And they were reminded of what they did not have when they watched their nieces and nephews play in the day, when they watched their servants tuck their children in to bed at night, and every month when, yet again, their hopes were crushed by not being able to conceive. But Yahweh's grace had come upon them in the unexpected. Just when this man and his wife had given up hope, even laughing at the possibility of conceiving in their old age, Yahweh's promise to them was believable again. For Yahweh had miraculously opened his wife's womb, and she conceived and bore a son, Isaac. The years of waiting now seemed to make sense. Yahweh's promises felt completely trustworthy again. The man knew with great confidence that this was the God of the heavens and the earth, the creator of all. His faith had been made strong because of this gift from God, a miraculous birth. Now, most of you know, this is the shortened story of Abraham. Our passage this morning is Genesis 22, and it comes just after the birth of Isaac, this miraculous birth. Remember, for Abraham, his prayers at this point have been answered. His trust in God would have been great. God had granted him the impossible, a son. So after all the confusion of God's promises and commands and years of wandering and waiting, God's ways are finally making sense to him. So we pick up in Genesis 22, beginning at verse 1. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Genesis 22, beginning at verse 1. I ask that you pay careful attention to the reading of God's holy and infallible word. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask for your grace now upon this message this morning, but also upon our hearts. Speak to us as you have just done in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So you're probably thinking, okay, why did you stop reading at that point? The best part was about to happen. The whole relief, the whole assurance of the text was not even read. You see, just when Abraham starts to experience God's blessing of a son Isaac and his trust is solidified because of the answer of God's promise God commands the most unexpected thing Abraham could have imagined to sacrifice his own son. Now, the, the, the danger of preaching a sermon like this that doesn't go into the whole story, the whole passage, is a risk because someone in the congregation might not know the end of the story. So I have to say, and I will say, Abraham, in the end, he does not sacrifice his son, Isaac. God sends an angel to intervene, and God provides for Abraham a ram to sacrifice instead. And this really helps us understand that God... Proves his faithfulness to his promise. And Abraham proves his faithfulness in his obedience. And we love the end of this passage. It's good that we do. But sometimes I think we overlook some points of the text when we only see the end. When we only see Abraham not sacrificing Isaac and God intervening and providing graciously and mercilessly, which he does. I have to say, last time I preached here, I talked about uh, Phinehas in uh, Numbers 25. And in many ways, I uh, purposefully ignored the whole theme of atonement, so evident in that chapter. So I thought, in good pattern, and maybe in good tradition, my sermon this morning will ignore the atonement again. (laughs) Uh, Since I'm only dealing with the first part of this passage. I I promise, I I don't hate the atonement, um, in case you were wondering. Uh, This morning we'll be talking about trials and the nature of God's testing and trying to get at the, uh, try to answer the question, how does God, how does the Christian trust God in darkness or in the unknown? So my point in not finishing the text is that you get a glimpse of the scene and its true horror. Abraham's sense of dread but also the incredible model Abraham gives us for how to trust God in times when we are experiencing trials. God's command here is startling. No matter how many times you read this passage, even though we know it's ending, this story of God's command to Abraham to sacrifice his only son is just baffling. If you heard and read the text and thought to yourself, This still strikes me as incomprehensible that God would command Abraham to sacrifice his only son. Or, why would God do this? Why would this gracious God say to the person who he promised all the nations would be blessed through, why would God then miraculously give him a child and then command him to kill this same child? If you're asking these questions or feeling these questions, if you are confused, perhaps even frustrated, From this text. Good. Good. You're supposed to feel that way. It means that you are thinking about what Abraham would have felt during this whole event. Our text, our text even underlines, highlights the upsetting, jolting nature of this test. In verse 2, God says to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and offer him as a burnt offering on, on the surface this almost sounds like something the main bad guy in the movie would say to the protagonist in the movie as he has him tied up as if he is rubbing in the tragedy that he is about to do against the hero's family or something this just sounds bizarre and it's okay if this is disturbing for us even shocking do not ignore those feelings if you are feeling them There have been lots of explanations and reasons given by authors, scholars, and pastors why God would give this crazy command to Abraham. And though there are lots of nice theories and imaginative ways that we try to really lessen God's confusing command to Abraham, it remains just that, confusing. The only thing we can be certain about this command is that it is a test. The whole event starts off this way in verse 1. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham. But let's not fool ourselves to think that this hint makes God's command to Abraham any more clear to us. The command is still perplexing. One of the frustrations about such a text before us is that we do not have so many of the answers that we want to have. This is not like other ancient poetry. This is, this is not like the ancient poetry from the Iliad or the Odyssey where everything is really made clear for the reader. The whole background is deliberately communicated. Each character's feelings and thoughts are portrayed with such vivid imagery that truly nothing is left for the imagination of the reader. But in our story of God's command for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, everything is left to the imagination. Why did God test Abraham in the first place? What was Abraham's reaction? What was his reaction like when God told him? What was Abraham thinking when he heard this? How long did it take before Abraham snapped out of his shock after this command from God? Did Abraham even have a verbal response? Did he cry out and plead with God not to have him do this? Did God say anything else but this simple command that we get from our text? What did Abraham tell his wife Sarah? What did he tell his servants? What did he tell Isaac? All of these questions are left to our own imaginations. And I think that is one of the purposes of the text. The fact that so much is left for us to imagine and ponder, this is the text's invitation to the listener. I want to say it's God's invitation to us to enter into the text itself to try to feel what Abraham felt, to imagine, to imagine what we would have said to our wife if we were in Abraham's place. What would we have said to Isaac on the three-day trip? And then most of all, what would this make us think of Yahweh God? To imagine such things is to imagine Abraham in a panic, anxiety-ridden, perhaps depressed, angry with God, even confusion with who he thought God to be. It would have been utter darkness. God's command to Abraham would have made him feel such terrible darkness. That feeling that God is not with him, that he is unknown, that he has left him, that he is just like the greedy gods of the pagans around him who de- who demanded child sacrifices to appease divine authorities. But what are we told that Abraham does? In verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. We are simply told that Abraham obeyed. All we can say is that Abraham trusted himself to the faithfulness and promises of God and obeyed God's voice. No matter what he felt, no matter what he said to God, to his wife, to himself the night before he left, what we know is that Abraham simply obeyed. And that, brothers and sisters, is the Christian life. So how does the Christian trust God in darkness? How do we trust God amidst trials and persecution? We obey God. No matter the circumstances in our lives, no matter the constant injustices around the world that gives us puzzlement about God's control of all things, no matter the the slander, the gossip, the hate that we experience in our individual lives with other people, even fellow Christians, God still calls us to obey him. To obey him, especially in the darkness we experience in this life. There was a Syrian monk around the 5th century, who wrote under the pen name Dionysius. And Dionysius wrote extensively about the darkness of God. Now this this was not some attempt, I'll say it again, this was not some attempt to give God the authorship of sin and evil. That's obviously heretical. But it was the monk's exploration of the paradox of God and his workings in the world. In other words, this monk sought to explore how God works with his children in mysterious ways that they experience. Scripture is full of dark imagery in describing God's presence. Psalm 97 says, The Lord is king. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. 2 Samuel 22 describes the event of David with God. And David says, Thick darkness was under his feet. And then later he says, He made darkness around him a canopy. So whether we like it or not, darkness and God's presence, darkness and God's actions are connected in Scripture. Oftentimes this imagery is displaying God's wrath, his power, his mystery, but also God's testing. Another example in Scripture in Exodus Twenty twenty one. we are told the people stood at a distance while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And remember Exodus 20, this comes right after God gives Moses and Israel the Ten Commandments. Early in the passage, it says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking Mount Sinai, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood afar off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses says to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood afar off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So The thick darkness of God in this passage has everything to do with God testing Israel so that they would not sin. That they would obey. The imagery of God in darkness is often a reminder that God's ways make the crooked straight, yes, but they also make things look crooked. God is light, but his ways feel dark, they feel unknown. He is the God of order, but he is also in the whirlwind, he is in the storm, he is in the plagues, he is in the flood. We must agree that, yes, there is no darkness in God. There is no darkness in God. He is only good and true. No sin or evil is in God. 1 John 1.5 makes that clear. But we cannot escape the fact that God's ways often feel dark, meaning they are unknown to us. But not just unknown, God's ways can also be confusing and bizarre to us. They don't make sense to our minds. The Welsh poet Henry Vaughn once wrote, There is in God a deep but dazzling darkness. I think Vaughn really gets at the paradox of how we experience the unknown ways of God. They are dark but dazzling. If you are not confused by the actions of God, well then you probably think you know God a lot better than you do. If you are not sometimes baffled by the inescapable darkness you experience in this life, Well, you probably have God too nicely contained in your theology. God's dazzling darkness breaks into our nice and easy ways to understand God because we were never meant to fully understand Him. Many times we will seek God, but we will not find Him. But that doesn't mean He is not there. God is in the silence. He is in the darkness because he eludes all our attempts of making him predictable and safe. This is really how God teaches us to trust. It is in these instances where the opportunity to obey becomes most ripe. The experiences of God's lost presence, the darkness that comes upon us when we are in the middle of affliction and confusion, those are the opportunities to expect God working in our lives in most powerful ways. Abraham seized this opportunity with such trust that he simply obeyed. We would do well to imitate him. And As the story unfolds, we get a little bit more detail about the willingness of Abraham to actually sacrifice his son. As you read, you almost get this feeling of Wow, Abraham was completely ready to go through with this terrible act. In verse 5, he tells his servants to stay with the donkey while he and Isaac go and worship, and they will come back to him. Again, we we have more left to our imaginations. What did Abraham mean when he said they both would come back to the servants? What we do know is that Abraham fully intended to worship. Part of the worship ritual, which continued for the entire Israelite culture, was worshiped through sacrifice made to God. So when Abraham tells his servants that he's going to worship, he knows that this worship involves a sacrifice. He knows this involves the sacrifice of his son for God as a burnt offering. Again, it appears as if Abraham is entirely ready to go through with this. And his willingness becomes more clear as the text continues. In verse 6, it says, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, he laid it on Isaac, and then carried the fire and the knife. The text gives us the entire wording for us to expect Abraham to carry on with God's command of sacrifice wood, fire, knife. However, Abraham would have felt at this point, he was still willing to do what God commanded. It was really at this point while I was uh, working through the text, I have to admit, I was a little tempted to think Abraham is not being faithful here. Just a little tempted. I think it is entirely appropriate to ask, why is Abraham not arguing with God in all of this? I mean, we have in the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, what does Abraham do? He pleads and even bargains with God for the sake of Lot and his family. We have elsewhere in Scripture, such as the Psalms and Job, we have example of God's people crying out to God in anger and confusion for what he has done or what he is doing arguing and wrestling with God is painted in Scripture as an obvious human reaction. Sometimes a good thing to do, like Jacob wrestling with the angel. So why in the world is Abraham not doing that in our passage? Uh, Theologian Richard Middleton, he actually argues that Abraham's action shows a lack of faith by not arguing with God as Job did. A sort of blind allegiance. He argues that The story is more about God's faithfulness to work with imperfect people like Abraham. While that is true, Abraham is imperfect, I am not convinced. I propose that this is not what the author here is doing. We have to remember that the whole event leaves so much to our imaginations, but we must not get carried away with our imaginations and think that Abraham here is operating in some kind of blind faith or, or faltering trust in God. We have nothing in the text that would point us to some kind of negative when it comes to Abraham's faith. It is actually the reverse. Abraham's faith here is a type. It is a type of faith to be honored, lifted up, and imitated. In addition, we, we can't assume Abraham did not argue with God, but the author does not give us that side of the story. All that is recorded is a faithful Abraham willing to obey And give up what he most loved, his only son. And this is what must be emphasized in our text. Abraham was absolutely willing to give to God what he most desired in the world. In our passage, Abraham's conversation with Isaac is perhaps the most disturbing part of the text. Isaac's confusion comes into the story now. So, no doubt, Abraham is confused at this point. But now we get a sense of Isaac's thinking in all of this. And if you, are, if you are a parent or have dealt with kids for some time, a child's confusion in the middle of darkness, in the middle of trials or suffering, is perhaps the most gut, gut-wrenching thing to experience. I had a conversation this past year with my seven-year-old daughter. We talked about divorce. We had a close friend who was going through a divorce, a biblical divorce, and my daughter was asking questions as she overheard us talking about it. At this point, I thought it best to explain to her her grandparents' divorce and the reason why she has two sets of grandparents on my wife's side. But I was not ready for the confusion she expressed and the questions she had about how the people she loved no longer loved each other. Why? What happened? Why would they stop loving each other, she asked. Father, the fire and the wood we have, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering, asked Isaac. Isaac's innocence here is brought to the forefront He had probably watched his father prepare sacrifices for worship often. He probably even helped him at times. And Isaac here knew something was missing. There was no lamb for the offering. What a dreadful experience for Abraham to see such innocence in his son. Perhaps even an eagerness in his son to help him. And for us as the reader, Isaac's dialogue is is another brilliant point the author makes to humanize this entire scene. Father, where is the lamb? This kind of of helps us remember, oh yeah, what in the world could Isaac be thinking and feeling at this point? Again, the text invites us to feel the weight of the scene. And yet, Abraham is still utterly willing to sacrifice what he loves most. He is asked to give back to God the one thing he prayed and patiently waited for for decades. He had given up hope and then miraculously gifted a son. And now, now he has to give it up. And Abraham is completely willing to do so. Verse 9 and 10 say that Abraham came to the place that God had shown him. He laid the wood down. He bound Isaac on the altar. And with a knife in his hand, he was about to do the unthinkable. So how does the Christian trust God in darkness? By willing to sacrifice what you love most. For some of us, and I feel like I am still on this journey, we need to ask ourselves, what do we love? What are your loves that drive you? What are the things you hold most dear to you in this world? Could you give them up? Could you give them up for God? We really need to take some time to contemplate, to meditate with God and with others about our loves. And then ask bigger questions about sacrificing those loves. Can we do that? Will we sacrifice those loves if asked? I think think parents, including myself, I often forget what it actually means to be given the blessings of children. Part of raising our, our children is preparing them to leave. Faithful parenting is about nurturing God's love and his law into their hearts for that time when you actually have to give them up. In one sense, your children were never yours to begin with. You want to talk about experiencing the darkness of God, the silence of God, Try thinking, let alone actually doing, try thinking about letting your daughter or your son out into this world, into the godless state of things as they are today, without you, without your guidance, without your presence. For many of us, that is a scary thought. Remember Jesus at the end of Israel's story. Our Lord does not tell his disciples to return. As Peter Lightheart says, Jesus sends his disciples away saying, get out of the house. Sons, heirs of God, go fill all the corners of the world in order to fill the earth with my glory. Jesus' commands for the disciples is the perfect model for the goal of parenting, to raise up sons and daughters who will leave. The question is, are we parents, are we willing to let them go? This small example is but a piece of what it means to sacrifice what we love. And if we do not practice the little sacrifices, daily giving up of our own desires for the sake of others, for the sake of holiness, how can we expect to make bigger, more important sacrifices that God commands us to make? What we learn from our text is that God's tests are often experiences of confusion and utter darkness. No other act of God best depicts the darkness of God than Jesus' death on the cross, the death of God. God became man, became a baby, to be tortured and then nailed to a tree until dead. Imagine the utter darkness of that day. The day actually did go dark how inexplicably confused his disciples would be watching their friend, their master, the Son of God, die right in front of them. Imagine the darkness Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane right before his death. His prayer to God the Father for another way. But what did Jesus do? Jesus simply obeyed God the Father and sacrificed himself for the sins of the world for us. From God's perspective, he sacrificed what he loved most, his son. You see, our our assurance is not simply in the good things that happen to us. It is not just in answered prayer or only in the blessings we so often are given by God. Our assurance must also be in the darkness of God. When we feel alone, when God feels distant, when hope seems lost. And if we remember well the stories of Abraham, Job, the psalmist, and the perfect trust of Jesus in his life and death, we will be ready to face the darkness and trust that we are not alone. And we do this by persevering through obedience and sacrifice. No matter what trials or tests, are brought our way. For our God is in our storms. He is in our sufferings. These are His tests. And God's tests are most often the means He chooses to make our faith strong. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, it is a hard thing sometimes to thank You for Your, for your trials. for for the silence that we often experience when we are in need, when we want to hear from you and we don't. So we ask, Lord, for your spirit. We ask, Lord, that you would give us that trust. You'd help us through your scripture, through the stories, through, through people like Abraham that we read, who obeyed. Who obeyed and was willing to sacrifice because his trust was made sure by trusting you in silence we ask lord that you would you would help us see that the hard times the trials the tribulations these are part of your testing these are opportunities for us these are opportunities for us to obey and to respond well for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of our own hearts, but for the sake of those around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.